Lord, we just come before you and thank you for this evening. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at your word. We thank you for all that you've done. We ask you to be with each person and that's going through issues and guide and lead. Give us your peace and your comfort in all that's going on. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, 1 Kings chapter 7. How about 8? That's where, that's where I'm turned. It says eight there and eight there. I don't know why I said seven. <laughs> we can review. It, we've only been on eight for three weeks. So, All right, we've been looking at Solomon. Has completed the temple. He's been praying for the temple. Uh, he's been praying to God. He's been talking to the people. And in verse 22 is where we left off. So we're going to start there. And Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the congregation of Israel and spread forth his hands toward heaven. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath who keeps covenant and mercy with your servants that walk before you with all their heart. Who has kept, the, who has kept with your servant David, my father, that you promised him, you spoke also with your mouth and you have fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. Therefore now, Lord God of Israel, keep with your servant David, my father, that you promised him, saying, There shall not fail a man in, in my sight to sit on the throne of Israel, so that your children take heed to their way, that they walk before me as, the, as you have walked before me. And now, O God of Israel, let your word, I pray you, be verified, and you, that you, which you spoke unto my, your servant David, my father, Behold, God will indeed dwell upon, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and the heavens of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. Yet you have respect unto your prayer of your servant and to his supplication. O Lord, my, my God, to hearken unto the cry and unto the prayer which your servant prays before you to, today that your eyes may be open toward this house night and day, even toward the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, you have, that you may hearken unto the prayer which your servant shall make unto, toward this place, and hearken you unto the supplication of your servant and to your people Israel when they shall pray toward this place, and hear you from heaven, your, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. So we're going to stop here because this is... Solomon's prayer and we're going to find out at the end somewhere in here it says he stood before the altar but at some point he kneels before the altar because when we get to the end of this prayer he's going to stand back up and one of the things that's been said over years of of Christian life and Jewish life is that we stand tall on our knees so there's this idea that when we stand before the throne of God we actually should be on our knees because of how great God is. And so I'm not sure if that's what they were referring to, but someplace during this prayer, he bows down in, in, uh, onto his knees. So he starts out, it says, Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the children of Israel and spread forth his hands toward heaven. Before this, he had talked to the children of Israel. He had told them about the, this God's promises. and keep. Now he turns back to the altar and starts talking to God. And this is kind of an interesting thing because he keeps going back and forth. He started talking to God, turns to the people, talks to the people, tells them all about how God has kept his word and, and his promises. Then he's turning back to God. And then we're going to see him come back to the people. 
And it says, he stood before the Lord in the presence and spread forth his hands toward heaven. He raised his hands. It's kind of amazing over the years when I've seen so many churches that refuse to raise hands, refuse to worship God. I've been in some churches where you would think that if they smiled or raised their hands or celebrated God, that they'd be kicked out. But yet you see in God's word, he says, shout, sing, make a joyful noise, raise your hands, you know, bow, David, dance before the Lord. You know, there's all these things that as long as it's worship to God and not being disruptive to what's going on in the service, it is good. And we, we want to encourage that kind of activity. Are we worshiping God or are we just there being very stoic? And we don't, you know, I've been in churches where they've started moving toward the more traditional with, with uh, guitars and drums and all these things. And then people get upset about it. And I'm going, Why, what's your problem? Which scripture are you using that says don't use these things? Because if you get into the Psalms, it talks about, you know, flutes and guitars and drums and cymbals and, you know, really loud instruments. And so, again, is it adding to the worship of God or is it pulling back from the worship of God? If it adds to the worship of God, I'm all for whatever we do. You know, it is, it is fun to see people get excited about God. And I love to see people get excited about God because God deserves our excitement. He has come into our life. He has changed who we, who we are. He is changing our lives. And if we can't get excited about that, we've got a problem. You know, we, we don't know him. If we can't get excited about what he's doing in our life, we really don't know him very well to be able to pull back like that. So we want to encourage this. And he's saying he raises his hands toward heaven. Why? Because he is humbling himself before God. And when you raise your hands before God, it is a surrender. It is, it, you're in a defensive position with your hands up. You're showing there's nothing in your hands. And we're showing God we're surrendered to you. And this is his posture. And then he says, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like unto you in heaven above or on earth beneath who keeps, covenants, coven, keeps covenant and mercy with his servant, the servants that walk with him with all their heart. And this is the beautiful thing. What sets Christianity apart from every other religion is that we have a God who loves us has mercy on us, and cares about us. It's an amazing thing because you talk to other people in other different religions or that are just following so-called Christianity as a religion, there's no peace in their life. They're always worried about their relationship with God. Have I done enough good things to please God? Well, if that's your question, the answer is no. Plain and simple, if you're worrying about have I done enough good things to please God, the answer is no. Because nothing we can do will please God. We talked about that last week in Isaiah. God says he will declare our righteousness, all of our good works, and it profits nothing. Okay? All our righteousness is filthy rags. You know, for by grace are we saved by faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. So Solomon says here, there is no God like our God who keeps his mercy and keeps the people that is his. And this is something that is so wonderful. God keeps his promises. When we get into the scripture and we see the promises of God, God's going to keep them. He hasn't changed his mind. He hasn't forgotten them. And if you want to, you can, I mean, all through the scripture, the guys, the, the, the uh, prophets and the, and the teachers in the Bible remind God about his promises. 
God, by the way, you said, in case you've forgotten God, you said, I'm, I'm, I'm holding on to what you're saying. They're not really trying to remind God, but they're trying to let him know that we know your promises and we're standing on your promises. And this is what's important for us. We know that Jesus died for our sins and we know that he is indwelling us if we have asked him to come in and be our Lord and Savior and then we can stand on that promise. He is protecting us. He is keeping us. He is the one that is responsible for keeping us. He is the one that's going to give us the strength to do what's right in the first place. So we hold on to the promises of God and we grab hold of them. You know, and I've challenged just write down notes of what God has done. And, and I would also keep a notebook of the promises of God. That when God speaks to you about a promise, write it down. Now make sure you're taking it in context. Because we're going to find all kinds of promises in the rest of this chapter when we get through this section. And all of them are conditional promises. So don't lift out a promise of God that, that was a conditional promise and say, God, I expect this if you're not going to fulfill the condition. Okay, now, there are some promises that he gives us that are just straightforward promises. But there's a lot of things that he says, I'm going to do, if you do these things, I will do these. All right. Now, he's promised us that he loves us and he's going to save us and he's going to keep us. That's an unconditional promise because Jesus died for our sin. We can grab hold of that one. We can grab hold of all things work together for good for those who love God and called according to his purposes. Not a problem. We can grab hold of that one. You know, there's a lot of verses we can grab hold of. But even that one has a slight caveat that you have to love God, which is, means being one of his children. Now, if you're not one of his children or won't be one of his children, there's no promise in there that all things are going to work together for good. But we want to grab hold of the promises and say, God, this is your problem. This is your promise to us. Jesus died, according to Isaiah 53, so that we could be healed spiritually. That spiritual death is what we're born into because of Adam and Eve's sin. We're born dead. And Jesus died on that cross so that we could be healed and revived and given a life because of his sacrifice. And once he gives that life, he calls it eternal life which means it doesn't go away. All right? And I meet all kinds of people who go, well, if I don't live quite the right way, I go, what part of eternal don't you understand? All right? God says you have eternal life. He is not an Indian giver. He's not taking your eternal life away from you because you didn't earn it, because you couldn't earn it in the first place. But this is the problem with so many people that they don't understand God's grace. Now, as Paul said, because of, you know, because do we sin that grace will abound? No, God forbid. But when we sin, God's got grace for us. And he gives us grace. That doesn't mean we go out and purposely try to see how far God's grace is going to last. You know, it will, it will outlast us. But when we, if we want to live that lifestyle and out, try to outlast, you know, outdo his grace, consequences come along. And God says, fine, I'll give you grace, but you're going to have lots of consequences for that lifestyle. His grace will always be there when we fail. We go to him in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. And he indwells us. And he's promised forgiveness. Now, he, didn't, he doesn't promise that we won't have consequences. And I tell both all the time, there are consequences for it. But he says there's forgiveness. And we want to be able to keep this in mind, forgiveness by God's grace. How can he give us that grace? Jesus died for us. He paid for the sins. So he's reminding them, you're the God, you're the one, and there is no other God like you. All right? And he's, and 
He has been one, Solomon especially, is going to be one that's going to try out the other gods. At this point, he's, I think he's pretty good. He's at the height of his, height of his walk right now. He hasn't married, hasn't married the majority of his 1,000 wives and concubines. He hasn't started worshiping their gods. He hasn't started walking away from God. Right now, he is good, and yet he recognizes that God is merciful and faithful. At this point in, at this point in his life, he understands it. In verse 24, he goes, Okay, who has kept with your servant David, my father, that you promised him, you spoke also with your mouth, and you have fulfilled it with your hands as uh, it is in this day? Because you made a promise to David. What was, it, what was the promise that he's been talking about this whole chapter? That Solomon would build the temple that David wanted to build. And Solomon is praising God at this, you know, kind of almost boasting, but you know, if we're boasting in God, there's not a problem with that. If we're boasting on our own strength, our own abilities, we've got a problem and we, don't, we shouldn't be doing that. But to boast in God, this is what God is doing. And this is what Solomon's saying. You, you kept your promise. You kept your, your way with God. You did all of this. And then he says, Therefore now, Lord God of Israel, keep with your servant David my father that you promised him, saying, There shall not fail you a man to, in your sight to sit on the throne of Israel so that my, your children take heed of their ways that they walk before me as you have walked before me. So now he's reminding God of the next step of that. Because David's promise wasn't only to build a temple. The Davidic covenant was that a seed of David would always be on the throne of Israel. And if you go through, and as we go through Kings and Chronicles, we will see that in the southern kingdom, there was always somebody from David's line on the throne. And it was a male. Only one time did the, southern, the northern kingdom have a female queen after she killed almost all the, all, all the kings and their sons and took over the, the reign. And but the children of Israel, God has had a king on the throne of the southern kingdom that is David's son. Now between the exile for the Babylonians to the time that they have not had a king, there's no, no king to sit there because there is no king. When Jesus came onto this world, he was of the tribe of Judah, of the line of David, and was the last person that could claim to be king, that could generate their genealogy, which just happens to be written in two places in the Bible, to tell us that he is the king. He is qualified to be king. In Matthew and Luke, we see two genealogies for Jesus. Matthew gets the genealogy through Joseph, even though Joseph isn't a bloodline of David. Joseph is of the line of David. Line of David. Mary is given to us in Luke, and she is the actual physical mother of, of Jesus, and she is also of the line of David. And it's quite interesting when you look at this that God said, okay, you don't want one line, I'll give you both lines. He, he definitely has all the rights to be king. And he's the last of the, last of the individuals because when the Jerusalem fell in 70 AD, all the genealogical records were destroyed. There's not another person out there that can prove their genealogy back to David outside of Jesus. And Jesus being eternal and resurrected is 
the ultimate fulfillment of this covenant with David, that the king will sit on the throne forever. And that's Jesus. And he will sit on the throne forever. So we have this promise, and here Solomon's reminding him, okay, God, you know, you made this promise. I'm here. And he's now praying for his children. God, you know, you, you said you're going to do this. Now Solomon puts a condition on it that God did not put on it. David's, the covenant with David was unconditional. David, your seed will sit on the throne. Solomon here has put that their children have to walk before God. <laughs> okay? One of the things I find very interesting, Eve added to the scripture. I believe it was Adam that added to the scripture. Solomon added to, added to the scripture. All right? It's very common for the Jewish people to add to the scripture stronger and stronger parts of the rules. It is not uncommon for us as Christians to try to add to Scripture. Well, God, you said it's all by grace, but I've got to read my Bible. I've got to pray every morning. Every morning I've got to go to church every time the door is open. I'm not to smoke. I'm not to drink. I'm not to do drugs. And we add all this big, long list of things that it is to please God. Now, are there anything wrong? Is there anything wrong with all of that? No, it's great to do all of that. It's great to be obedient to God, but the question is, Why? Why are we being obedient to God? Am I trying to please him? Am I trying to gain favor from him? Or is it because I love him so much, I just want to do what's right? And that ultimately is what it should be. When he indwells us so fully and he's changing us from the inside, our love for him pours out and says, God, I just want to be with your children. I want to pray with you. I want to read your scriptures. I want to serve you and be, be a good person. Not because I'm trying to earn favor. Solomon is added, and it's not uncommon. When you go through the scriptures, it's not uncommon, and it's human nature to add to it, because what is the hardest thing for us as Christians? We worship an invisible God. We can't really see the smile on his face to know whether he's happy or, he, or the anger on his face. We serve an invisible God that unless he's indwelling us and in, in the Holy Spirit is really ministering to him, we don't really know him. But the good news for us is when we know him, he indwells us and we know him. I know that I know that God lives in me and that he's at peace and changing me. I have no doubt. There is nobody who could convince me that I don't know God. Because I've had just 48 years of walking with him. I happen to know him pretty well. I'm not a casual acquaintance of his. I'm not a, I'm not a phone, you know, okay, God, I'm going to phone into you by reading the scriptures one, once, once or twice a month. Uh, you know, I am spending time with him every day, and I know that I know him, and I know that many of you in this room know that you know him. I know there's many people who don't know that they know him because they don't get into the word and really trust in the word, and they come into and they write and I've been talking to one of the men at the, one of the employees at the prison. He has no confidence that he's saved, even though he asked Jesus into his heart so long ago. He's concerned because he keeps falling into the same sins over and over again. And I go, let God deal with it. Accept that God has forgiven you. You've asked him into your heart. Just accept that God is taking care of you and making changes. You know, but if we're looking for the actual proofs that I'm a changed person, you know, the problem is we usually look for perfection. And we're not perfect, and we won't be perfect. And this is why I challenge us so, so often, look at 
are you growing? Are you different today than you were last year, two years ago, three years ago? If you can say yes, then just say, God, thank you. You're in here changing me. If you're looking for perfection, Satan is going to really help you find out how unperfect you are because none of us are perfect. And when, if I'm trying to think of, oh, gee, am I really perfect, Satan is going to remind me all the times when I've had bad thoughts, I've had lustful thoughts, I've had things I wanted to do and didn't or did do, <laughs> Uh, the times I didn't read my Bible faithfully, the times I, you know, came to church just because, or whatever it might be, he'll make sure that I understand that I'm not perfect. But if I'm looking at the fact of, am I doing better today than I did in the past? Am I more loving? Am I more kind? Am I not as quick-tempered? Am I not as, you know, you know and I look at all these things and say, yes, all right, God, you are changing me. You are making me a new creation. And this is important for us. If we're looking for perfection in our life and we're looking for perfection in other people, we're not going to find it and Satan is going to help us not find it. Okay, we wouldn't find it anyway and he's really going to be active to make sure that we, don't, that we see every imperfection. And this is what happens when people raise up some spiritual leader in their life and say, oh, I want to be just like them. And then Satan will come around and show you every flaw in their life to know, well, gee, I guess... You know, and usually what that will happen is if our, our leader falls, then they're going, well, no hope for me. They, they, they were good, and I can't do it, and, and you end up falling. Keep your eyes on God. Keep your eyes on the work that he's doing and the changes that he's doing for people because it's very important on this. And don't add to God's word. <laughs> All right? Don't add to his word. Uh, Eve added to it and said we're not even allowed to touch the fruit. Here he's adding to it and saying we have to obey, you know, my children have to obey you to keep their position. And God never said that. Now he is going to tell the northern tribe that their, their, their kings have to obey because they don't have the promise, promise of David because they're not David's seed. And many of them, are. there's going to be dynasty changes in the northern kingdom, but there is never a dynasty change for the entirety of the southern kingdom. There's different kings, but they're all of the line of David. Family. Verse 26 says, And now, O Lord God of Israel, let your word, I pray you, be verified that which you spoke unto, my, unto your servant David, my father. I love this. Let your word, I pray you, be verified, be made true, be proven. This is a good prayer for you. When you're grabbing hold of the promises of God, it's not a hard thing to say, God, I'm going to test you to see if it's proven. We're told to test God in the ties. In, in Malachi, it says, God says, try me to see if I won't provide when you, when you give the tithe. Okay? So God says, bluntly, Give me the tithe and see if I don't bless you. All right? And this is important. And people go, well, what's a tithe? I give money to God. That's not a tithe. The tithe is 10%. Okay, when God asks for a tithe, the tithe is what he asks for, and that's 10%. If you want to give offerings, that's above the tithe. All right? So, but God says, try me, prove me if I won't take care of you when you do this. And I'm going to tell you, over the years, I've challenged people to give their tithes, and I've listened to their reports, and every time they come back, God has blessed me. My money goes so much further than it used to. 
Now, does that mean it's going to be easy? Nope. Satan's going to come along all the time and say, okay, here's, are you, going to, are you still going to be faithful to God? You know, if you give that tithe, here's a bill that's not going to be paid. Here's an emergency that's not going to be paid. And God says, try me. The good news is when you honor him, God fulfills. And eventually, he might even ask you to go tithes and offerings. <laughs> All right? Uh, my, my, my minimum is much higher than a tithe because God's told me to do offerings. <laughs> and for me, at times, it's like, okay, God, you know, I got some big bills coming up. Uh, I could drop this back down to a tithe and still be honest. And God says, nope, you know, I've asked you for this extra. So my, mine is much more than that. But God has always been faithful. What is God doing with you? How is he working with you? He asks for minimum service. And this is, as I say, he also wants more than just money. He wants our time. He wants our energies. He wants us to be committed to him at least, I believe, 10% of our time. And this is something that's important. How much, how dedicated are we to God to lift him up as God? We're to have no other gods before God, and yet do we spend at least a tenth of our time with God? And that wouldn't even be, that wouldn't even be, you know, really what I would consider, you know, having no other gods before him, but at least a tenth would be the bare minimum. Do I spend two and a half hours a day with God, 16, 16.8 hours a week with God? You know, and that's a good question for all of us. Yeah, because it's easy to get wrapped up in all kinds of things, especially if you have that little silly box in your corner of your house that, that with the lights on it that shows all kinds of moving pictures and sound, or, or the phones anymore. You know, your phones can tie up a lot of time. Your computers can tie up a lot of can't time. So we look at this and say, where is our loyalty toward God and, and keep him? Verse 27 says, But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. He's gotten kind of smart there. He goes, God, uh, heaven and the heaven of heavens can't contain you. Now we've talked about this a little bit. The heaven is our atmosphere, our clouds and our, and our weather and all that. The heaven of heavens is the next heaven up where God indwells. And they, so we have our heaven, we have space, and then we have heaven. So there's the third heaven, and the Greeks called it the third heaven. The Jews called heaven our atmosphere and the cosmos. And then you had the heaven of heavens where God dwelt. In the uh, Greek world, Roman world, you had our atmosphere. Then you had the second heaven, which was all where the stars were. And then you had the third heaven where the gods God's dwelt. And Paul, when he was saying that he went to the third heaven, actually he said, there was a man that I know, whether in a dream or real, who went to the third heaven. We believe that was, he was talking about himself when he had been stoned, that he had died, gone to the, gone to, to the heaven of heavens, and then came back when, and when God apparently resurrected him, because people did not live from stoned. Paul. The Apostle Paul. He was stoned outside one of the cities for for his trouble and got up, got up the, the next day and uh, went back to preaching. 
And when, and when we talk about stone, you've got to think, understand, when, they, when the Jews stone somebody, we're not taking and saying they picked up baseball-sized stones. They would take rocks that took two hands, and they would throw them, and they would throw them, and they would throw them until the person was buried under the rock. So if the rocks didn't kill you, the sheer weight of the rocks would kill you. So Saul, it was believed, died and was resurrected during that period of, that period of time. And if his testimony was that he knew this man who went to the third heaven, we do believe that it was him speaking in the third person about himself. Um, but it says here, God, you cannot, you are bigger than the earth, you are bigger than the heaven, you are bigger than the heavens of heaven. And he goes, you know, and all I've done is given you this little tiny house here to dwell. And he goes, and he basically is going, what is this house? Thank you, God, for putting your presence on this house is what he's saying. And you think about this. For us, Christ dwells in us. It says the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwells in us. We have the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And it's kind of hard to imagine because we're not that big. And God isn't fully in, in each one of us, and yet he is fully in each one of us. You know, it's an amazing thing that God dwells fully in every single person that is his child. You know, because if you divide infinity by any number, it still comes out as infinity. All right? So you can divide an infinite God as much as you want, and you still have just as much of God as when you started. And he gets to dwell in each one of us. An infinite God fills each one of us, which is why, and we've said this so many times, why we can never be satisfied without God. Because God has put an infinite size hole in our life that only he can fill. That's so amazing. All right? It doesn't matter what sin I commit, what, what desires I have, I can get as much as, of anything. We could get all of what, if, if I wanted, you know, if I was looking for wealth, God could manage to give me all the wealth of all the world, and it still would not be enough to fill that infinite hole that only God can fill, which is why he must indwell us. You know, when Adam and Eve fell from their perfect state, they were in perfect relationship with God, then they died spiritually, and we don't even have a clue what it must have felt like to them to be separated from God because they had been built to be one with him. They were born with a spirit life. We come close to it when God comes into us, but you know, they lost that because of their sin. And then God had to redeem them and bring them back through the sacrifice of the, the animal that he used to clothe them. And then the consequences was he kicked them out of Eden and said, okay, now the whole world is cursed by your sin. Aren't you glad that our sins do not cause the whole world to get worse? It, it's bad enough. We can, we can impact part of our world, you know, you know our, our sphere of the world. But when Adam and Eve sinned, Everything went crazy. Weather, uh, floods, uh, thorns and thistles, death. You know, everything. And every time that they walked for the entire rest of their 950-some years, everywhere they looked, they saw death. 
Everywhere they saw, looked, they saw disease. Everywhere they looked, they saw the consequences of their sin. Without God in there, it would have been tough. Because we, we can do the same thing. You know, when we really mess up, we can look and say, this is how I messed up my family. This is how I messed up the life of the people around me. You know, Adam and Eve was just on a worldwide scale. They had nowhere to look where they couldn't see their, their cause. We can at least look at other lives and other families that we hopefully didn't affect. But, you know, their curse and the world, Jesus, you know, Jesus said that the world is waiting for its redemption. It's waiting for its return back to the way it was supposed to be. During the millennial kingdom, it will be as close as we can ever get in this world because there's still a sin. But Jesus will restore lives to, a, to close to a thousand years, hundreds and hundreds of years life. The animals will, will be at peace with, with human beings and each other. It'll be a wonderful time where God is ruling. But to make it absolutely perfect, he's going to destroy this whole world and start all over. And then we will be in the perfect world that we're supposed to live in. And we will have our perfect bodies to live in that perfect world. And what that world's going to be like? Oh, it's kind of an amazing thing. Uh, there'll be work, but it'll be enjoyable work. It'll be good work. There'll be commerce. There'll be all kinds of things going on because the Bible talks about it as being a perfect environment with commerce, with all kinds of things going on. And, you know, and that's going to be an interesting time. How does that work? I don't know. I'm not perfect. I can't even begin to comp comprehend because everything I think of is imperfect. Because I, my mind is imperfect, even though I've drawn close to God, all my mind keeps going back to rewards and, and stuff, and it's not going to be all driven by that. God's going to give us the perfect job for us. I don't know. I've had many times where God's given me the perfect job, at least temporary, and I just have fun doing what it is that he's given me. And that's a blast. When you're, doing, when you're working and you're having fun with work, you're not working. You're almost playing. You know, I get to do... You, you mean they're going to pay me to do this? I get to, I get to do this for 40 hours a week? You know, uh, and it's fun when you have that. And whatever heaven has is going to have that kind of attitude. You're going to look at work and go, this is what he wants me to do all day? Just have, just have fun doing this? You know, it, it'll be a very interesting time. And then God will say, it's time to worship. It's time to stop playing and have worship time. You know, quit playing in the sandbox and get over here and worship, you know, which is the purpose of the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day is to get us to rest, quit having fun, and to rest. And I've heard many people say, well, I just enjoy doing all this stuff. And that's it. You don't understand. God is wanting your, his attention, your attention on him on the Sabbath. Not doing what you find fun, but your attention on him. Now, if your fun is to worship God, then you've then you got the best of both worlds anyway. Yeah. I love to worship God. I love to get into his presence. And it doesn't happen so much here because I have to lead singing and I can't really get into worship the way I'd like to. But I love it when I get into worship and all of a sudden, I'm not worshiping hardly at all. I'm in God's presence. And it's wonderful to be there where it's like, oh, God, did I, get, did I go home finally? It doesn't last long. <laughs> but just to be in his presence and worshiping him is a wonderful experience. And I hope that you've experienced it. 
hopefully at home, if not here, at home, where you're just worshiping God and you're becoming one with him in your worship. And just saying, God, I just, I just love you so much. I just can't. It might happen when you're studying the word. It might happen when you're singing. It might happen when you're praying. But there should be these times when you just draw so close to God. It's like, God, did I go home? Am I, am I here? And you know, they're almost disappointed to come back. <laughs> you know, because it's like, oh, I didn't go home yet. <laughs> I, I'm still here. <laughs> God, thank you. So we look at this and his desire. God is bigger. And, you know, it's an amazing thing that he indwells us when heaven of heavens can't even contain him. And he says, I am everywhere. How big is your God? He should be in everything. You know, there's physicists are tar- starting to talk about that there might be multiple dimensions and universes. I have no problem if there is because God is God of those as well. If there's multiple dimensions and multiple universes, it doesn't bother me. God is still in charge of those ones. It's not going to be a problem. Do, I, do, do they have to exist? No. Can they exist? I have no problem with it because God is bigger than them. You know, how big is our God? I talk about God being present in, in time as well as space. God is covering time. He's in the beginning. He's in the end. He covers all dimensions. He's outside of all of that because he created it all. And the creator has to be bigger than everything else. Otherwise, he's not the creator. There's something else that's bigger than him, then they're the creator. God is bigger than anything and encompasses whatever science might be able to prove that's out there. Right now, they're just speculating about these. But again, I have no problem with it. If it's true, God's out there in control of those. Solomon's saying, God, you're so big. You, you know, we got this house for you, but it's not, you, it's not containing you. You're just... You're just gracing us by showing up here once in a while. And then he says in verse 28, Yet you have respect unto the prayer of your servant and to his supplication, O Lord God, to hearken unto the cry and to the prayer which your servant prays before you today. He recognizes that God listened. How does he know that God listened? He said, God, I dedicate this temple, and all of a sudden God's presence filled the temple. How do we know that God has listened to us? Well, our answered prayers, his inflowing into our lives, the peace that he gives us, that he is there, the miracles that he does around, around us, and we can see his presence just like they saw. Maybe not quite as bold and bright like that, but again, if we know him, we know that he is indwelling us. We know that his presence is there. When when Elisha was looking for God, he said, God, where are you? I want to hear your voice. And God thundered at him, and he, and he showed up in the whirlwind. And he says, it wasn't in any of those. He led to listen to a still, small voice. God wants us to be quiet before him. Because God is not going to come in on a rushing, mighty wind and grab our attention usually. Has he done that? Oh, yeah, he's done it. The burning bush for Moses, the, the, the wind, rushing wind and the fire at Pentecost. There's several places where God has come in in a mighty, loud way to show himself. Most of the time, he comes in with just a whisper. Listen. Why does he do that? Well, one of the things you learn, even as a teacher, sometimes the whisper gets people's attention a lot more than yelling. We usually think the more I yell at somebody, the more they're going to listen to me, and it's exactly the opposite way usually. 
If you really want to get the attention in a class, teachers are taught to just be quiet. It does not take the students long to kind of get nervous. The teacher's not talking. What's going on? And very quickly, very quickly, it doesn't even take long in most cases, but very quickly, it's silence starts sweeping the room. And then everybody's looking at the teacher like, what's going on? You know, if you want to get people's attention, sometimes the whisper is the most important way to do it, and that's how God speaks to us most of the time. Why? Because he wants us to quiet ourselves. He wants us to turn off the noise in our life and pay attention to what he is saying. That means sometimes turning off the television, turning off the radio, maybe even turning off the Bible for a while, you know, to listen. What do you want me to do? Now, God will speak to us through the word, so I'm not saying that's going to be something you turn off all the time, but there's times when we just need to turn off everything and say, God, I'm listening. Samuel in the, in the temple on two occasions thought, thought he heard God and thought it was Eli and went to Eli and said, you called me. And Eli said, no, I didn't call you. The, third, you know, the second time he goes, okay, next time says, speak, your servant listens. What was he saying? Speak to God and be quiet. Be quiet. Too many times we start speaking for God even before we know what he's speaking. Nathan did that with David. David says, I want to build a temple. And David, Nathan's first instinct was, all right, David, go build the temple. It sounds like a great idea. He didn't even get out of the palace before God said, go back and tell David he's not building the temple. Nathan, you, you didn't listen. You answered before you listened. So Nathan had to go back and say, I'm sorry, God says no. We want to be careful. We don't want to have to go back and say, God says no. <laughs> now, we want to start listening to God and say, God, you said do this. And just learn to listen. How do we hear his voice? Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. We spend so much time with him that we get to know his voice. One of the greatest examples for us in our day is mothers. Mothers hear their kids crying in the, in the Sunday school or the nursery or the playground, and they instantly know whether it's their child or not that's crying. And they also seem to instinctively know, do I need to get up and help that child because they're really hurt? Are they just a little sad? Or, you know, they know their call of their children because they spend so much time with them. If we really know God that way, that when he whispers, we know. When he says, it's time to really move, we know. When he says, do this, <laughs> with some emphasis, we hear and we know. How do we get to do that? just learn to spend time with him. We spend time in his word. We spend time being taught. We spend time in prayer. We spend time listening. And then when we get used to his voice, when we get a bad voice in our, in our, into our life, it's recognizable. There's times when I've listened to Christian radio kind of on the background, and all of a sudden something will strike me, and I'm going, what did that person just say? And I'll start listening. I'm going, okay, nope, not listening to the rest of this this, this uh, message, this guy is speaking false, false truth. And this is why, as much as I want people listening to Christian radio, I also want you to be praying about who to listen to. Because you can be fed wrong information so easy if you're not careful. And this is why I keep going over and over. I want good Bereans in this church, people who search out the scripture and say, this is what it says. I don't want anybody believing anything just because I said so. Now, I've been studying a long time, and I'm not purposely going to lead anybody astray, but 
I'm also not perfect. So if I say something that's not right, let me know and we'll correct it and we'll make sure and we'll look it over and we'll talk about it. But we want good Bereans. So he says, hearken unto my prayer because I'm praying to you that your eyes may be open toward this house night and day, even toward this place which you have said, my name shall be there, you, that you may hearken unto the prayers of which your servant shall make toward this place. So Solomon is saying, God, you've made a promise to, to us that you're going to hear if we present our supplications to you. And this is the advantage of a church, right? The church is a place that's dedicated toward God. Now, it's not the only place that God's going to listen to you, obviously. And for the Jews, they got to the place where they thought it was only the temple. And we see even, even in Daniel's time, he is praying, and it says he prayed toward Jerusalem where the temple belonged. Right? So he's, this whole idea that you had to pray, and even to this day, the majority of the Jewish synagogues are oriented so that their prayer side, the altar is facing Jerusalem. Wherever they're at, they will orient their building to face Jerusalem for the front, what's considered the front or the worship side. Uh, now, is there anything really wrong with that? No, not necessarily. But, you know, our focus is, for us with God, is that we are his temple. We should be praying to God who indwells us. We don't have to pray toward Jerusalem. We don't have to pray toward the, the uh, Calvary or the cross. We just pray because God is literally living in us. And so we have a little bit of advantage there. But he's saying, God, you've made a promise that when people pray to you, you'll listen. If they're really honestly praying to you. And this is the good news for us. This is a really a promise to us. God will answer and listen to us when we pray to him. He will listen and pray, answer to prayers even for people who aren't necessarily his if, if he's trying to get them to turn to him. How many times even before you were saved did you say a prayer that God answered? You know, or at least appeared to answer. You know, God will say, okay, fine. I'm going I'm to reach out to you and knowing that we're not going to keep our word because usually those prayers are, God, if you do such and such, I'm going to go to church for the rest of my life or I'm going to read my Bible for the rest of my life and we don't usually do it. God is not looking for that kind of a bargain, but you know, he's also trying to get our attention that he is a God who answers prayers. This is the great thing. We have a God that wants to hear us. Jesus said, you know, would, would a father give his, stone, uh, uh, his child a stone when he asked for bread? Would he give him a snake if he asked for fish to eat? And God says, You're, you are evil people and you know how to take care of your kids. God is not going to be any less. God is up there saying, I want to bless you. Now, does that mean we'll get anything and everything we ask for? Nope. God oftentimes says no. Why? Because he knows that we're going to waste it. He knows we're not going to use it for his glory. Because the scripture says that we will get anything we ask in his name. And we've talked about this. This isn't just tacking on Jesus. God, I want a, God, I want a Lamborghini in Jesus' name. Nope, that's not, that's not praying in Jesus' name. Just because I tack in Jesus' name at the end of my prayer does not mean that I have prayed in Jesus' name. But if I ask for him for something that will build up his reputation, that will lift him up, that's what it means to pray in his name. I'm lifting up his reputation, his honor. If I'm asking for things that will give, lift me up and give me honor, God's going to say, nope, you didn't pray in my name. You didn't pray, you didn't pray for anything that's going to help build the kingdom of God. 
And I've said over and over, my job at this church is really easy. I teach everybody and build God's kingdom, and then God builds the church. That's all I have to do. If people get taught and go to other churches, praise God, the kingdom's built. God is responsible for building his church, not me. All I do is teach and minister and love on people and answer questions and guide them. But it's between people and God where it really matters. What it means to pray in his name is to pray in his reputation and his, and his honor. So to tack on in Jesus' name is not really of any value whatsoever because you know whether, I'm, you know whether you're praying in his name. All right? If I'm praying, God, I want a Lamborghini in Jesus' name, and God's going, what do you need a Lamborghini for? Well, I want to look good as I drive around. You know, it's, and that's not praying in his name, even though I put in Jesus' name. But if I say, Jesus, save these, save these people, they're hurting. I didn't put in Jesus' name at the end of that, but I prayed in Jesus' name. Because it is definitely what he wants to do. He wants to help the hurting people. And that lifts him up in glory. So we want to be careful because we're told, do not pray with vain repetition. So if all we're doing is using the same words all the time, we're doing vain repetition, even if they're good words. If you're doing it because you think you have to do it, then it's vain repetition. If you're just doing it, you know, it's just something you want to do, that's fine. Churches out there say the Lord's Prayer every Sunday. Most of them are just doing vain repetition with not even thinking about the, thinking about the words at all. They're just saying the words without thinking about it. It's just vain repetition. Much of what's done in, in uh, certain denominations is just vain repetition because they do the same thing over and over again. But it, it's just vain because you start getting to the place where you're not even thinking about it. And that's the problem a lot of times with the songs that we sing. One of the reasons I don't sing very many songs over a lot is not because I don't want you guys to learn the songs, but I don't want you to get so familiar with the song that you forget to listen to the words as you're singing it because it is powerful. I keep hearkening back to what does it mean to be doing anything in his name is in his reputation because I can pray for all kinds of stupid things and say in the name of Jesus and I'm not praying for his in his name. All right. God, I want a million dollars. I want a Lamborghini. I want a mansion up on the hilltop. I want might even go, God, I want to have a church of 100,000 people, you know, and God's going, well, that's not what I want, so, you know. And even though I tack in the name of Jesus at the end of it, I'm not praying in his name. So we need to be very careful that we're not just vainly sticking things in there, which is why when it comes to amen, amen is a habit to me because it is a habit to me. It's not repetition or anything, but I know that it is, you know, so let, you know, let it be so, so I, that's how I end my prayers. But the biggest key to all of this is, are we serving God and worshiping God in whatever we do? But for true worshiping effect, as long as it's worship and not disruptive, I don't care what goes on you know, for our worship. Because as long as people are worshiping God, that's what it's all about. Our assembly is to come worship God. And that's what's important. You know, I don't like being a one-man show. I, you know, and I've been talking. I'd love to have somebody who want, you know, a couple of people that want to sing. I'd, if they want to take over the singing, it wouldn't bother me. So it just, and I'm not going to abandon the singing right away, right away. But the whole key to this is, are we lifting up God in what we're doing? Are we honoring Him in all that we do? This is why some people are teachers. Some, you know, I want to see us do more testimonies. That what is God doing in people's lives? We need to celebrate those things. 
you know, we need to celebrate what God is doing in our lives and stand up and tell people and, you know, and have people that want to just share. You know, I love to hear testimony. I love to really hear how people came to God and how he's changing their lives because, because it is important. I got saved when I was 10 years old and I got excited about, about sharing God with people. You know, he changed my life. I was a mean, angry, bitter child and anybody who was at my age got beat up because I was just mean and angry. You know, and God changed me overnight and has been changing me since then, but he made me somebody that fell in love with him and came to church and loved his word and wanted to be with other, other Christians and then slowly started teaching me to love people. <laughs> you know, that took many, many years to learn to love people. Sometimes I've asked God, why did you teach me to love people? It hurts to love people. <laughs> you know, I love that person so much and they're making bad decisions, God. Why did you make me want to even want to love them? And God says, well, you're beginning to know how I feel. Where he says, I love my creation so much that I just want them to be good and yet they don't. He wants them to do what's right. And even we as Christians don't do it. So we look at this and he says, you know, God is going to answer the prayers when we pray. And then the last verse was verse 30. And hearken you to the supplication of your servant and to your people Israel when they pray toward this place and hear you from heaven, you dwell, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. You know, this is kind of interesting because Solomon has said something very interesting. You might not even note it. He goes, when they pray toward here, and you hear, forgive. He knew there were going to be times when they weren't going to pray toward God and they were going to be backslidden. And he knew that when they prayed, he wanted God to listen. This is where I feel very comfortable in telling people, if you truly repent and pray to God, he will listen. And he will forgive. And this is the value of our relationship with God. He forgives. You know, there are every other religion out there where people don't understand the, or have a God that forgives. Every group out there that's not following God is trying to do more good than bad to please God. And God says, turn to me. Turn to me and I will forgive. This is the beauty of it. We don't have to go out and be perfect. God is asking us to get better and better, but we don't have to get perfect because we can't get perfect. We are going to make mistakes and then we turn to God and say, God, forgive me, and he forgives us. I don't have to go out and do penance. I don't have to go out and do things to make up for the bad that I've done. He says, just turn to me and ask for forgiveness, confess your sins and repent, and he will forgive. It's that easy. I don't have to go out there and say, okay, God, I, what, what do you want me to do to make up? God says, you can't make it up anyway. So we need to keep this going on and say, God, I want your forgiveness. And we're going to end here at verse 30. Lord, we ask you to bless this time. We ask you to go forward with us today. Help us to see where you're what you want us to do in all that you're having us to do. Guide us, lead us. Lord, if there's anybody listening that doesn't know you as the Lord and Savior, we ask that today 
They will confess that they're a sinner and ask you to come into their life and to save them and to fill them and to change them. And that they will recognize that they are a new creation because you have paid that price and you have filled them. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please today make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.